0: So we begin this morning. I want you just to think for a moment. Uh, This is kind of our normal way of how we uh, progression of how we go through our service. We sing some songs and we pray and then we go to God's word. And I want you to think for a minute. If if instead of me getting up today, as I always do and beginning a sermon, if I just stayed seated and the the screen came down and a video started to roll. And as it started to roll within, let's say, 10 or 15 seconds, you realize that the video That was on the screen was your mind's eye from the last week. All the thoughts you've had, everything you've said, everything you haven't said, all the things you've done in private were suddenly on the screen. And there we all are watching. And then you realize everyone realizes it's your stuff up there and you start to see it. And you start to go, wait a second, what's going on here? Or, or better yet, we think of where technology is moving. What if we were to say, we could download all your thoughts. Who would volunteer to say, yeah, you can take all my thoughts and put them up there. I'm, I'm good with that. It's a pretty horrifying thought when you think about it. If you really stop and think for just a second, what if it was everything I've thought all week plastered up there for every one to see. It reminds me of an old joke when we talk about church. A lot of times I've, I've heard this. This is the old, the old preacher's joke. It, was, it goes that if you knew all my thoughts and everything that I've ever done and all my sin, that none of you would have come here this morning to listen to me. And if we knew all your thoughts and all the stuff you've ever done, we wouldn't have let you in. That's, that's the way the old joke goes. Thankfully, that's not true because we don't come together to hear my thoughts. We come to hear God's word proclaimed and taught, and opened up, and it's not my thoughts, because if it was just my thoughts, you'd be better off doing something else. And the same is true for you coming. There's not some level of behavior or standard of behavior you have to achieve to come into the church. That's not the way Christianity works. And so thankfully, we have this wonderful, that we come in God's grace, and we're all on equal footing under the cross, so we come together. But I bring that up about that thought of what if we could see all of it, and what would that be like, and that we get that picture to a degree in Psalm 139, and that's where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 139 is what we're looking at. And I'll be honest, I forgot to check what the uh, the page number is. We have these Bibles that we've put there for, for you to use if you don't have one. I think it's 335, okay, thank you. There you go. 335 is where it starts, so... Uh, if, if you need a Bible, you don't have one, you're visiting with us today, you need one, you're free to take one of those. That's what they're there for. But we also put those so you can find it easy and you can read along in the same version we're going to be in. And we're in Psalms today because we've been doing the overview of Scripture, the big idea, the big picture. And last week we got up to David in 2 Samuel. And it's a period under the United Kingdom is what we call it. United in that Israel is united under one earthly king. And that goes from Saul to David, to Solomon, and it lasts about 120 years. And although it's only 120 years of all the time that scripture spans, there's a lot of scripture dedicated to that, that specific period of time. And when we looked at the last couple of weeks, for example, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel cover that time, uh, 1 Chronicles, part of Kings, part of 2 Chronicles, all of that's covering this period. But along with that, Psalms comes right in there as well. A lot of it. If you know in your In uh, your Bible, Psalms is the longest book of the Bible. There's 150 Psalms. And over half of those, David himself wrote, King David wrote. So as we we hit to David last week, we got to that period. It made sense that we'd stop and look at one of the Psalms in our overview of Scripture, our big idea as we move through. So that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to be in Psalms 139. So we're going to read that together and then we're going to jump in and look at it. This is one of the uh, most famous of Psalms. There's a lot of wonderful... Uh, lofty thoughts about who God is and what's going on. So let's look at that together and then we'll work our way through that. So Psalm 139 says, "O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden for you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance and in your book were written And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a the complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's go to the Lord in prayers before we go to our time of looking at this together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. As we always ask as we begin, we just pray that your spirit would come and move in this place that you would open our eyes to see your word, that you would open our ears to really hear it. Most of all, we just pray that you would move in this place, that you would point us to you, that we would see you clearly through your word this morning that we'd see the beauty of your grace and your mercy and the way you love us, that it would just be so clear. We pray that uh, we just confess this morning without your spirit uh, this can't happen, that we can't know it, that we need you in this place to do so. And so we ask that you would, that you would be here and open our hearts and minds to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this morning, as we look at Psalms 139, we're going to start like this and just think there's some really great, big, huge things that this psalm tells us about who God is. So we're going to start with that. Who is God or what does it tell us about God? And then part two will be that can either be really terrifying or really wonderful depending on how we look at it. So it's either terrifying or wonderful. And then the third is it's actually wonderful. So I'm going to kind of give away the end. It's actually wonderful, but we want to make sure we see why it is because we can so easily slip into this could be really terrifying. So let's just start with what it teaches us about God, what it says about who God is. And when we get into this, we really talk about uh, big ideas of doctrine or theology, the doctrine of who God is. And when we say those words, oftentimes we go, oh, great doctrine. Or theology. We actually talked about that a little bit in Sunday school about why theology is so important, and we talked about what that means. It's what we know about who God is and the way He's revealed Him to us. What we think about God. We all have a theology, whether we admit it or not. And so this is very important to us. We can we can kind of push it aside and go, "Oh, that's that's seminary stuff," or that's for libraries or whatever, but it's very important to our our daily lives. And as we've been walking through this big picture of scripture, that our job or our what we were made for is to glorify God. That is to reflect back who he is. When we think about our theology and who God is, it's pretty important that we know who he is. And we think about those things if we're going to reflect back who he is. Right Right knowledge for God leads to right affections for God. So that leads to how we glorify him. So it's very important in our everyday life. And so I hope you don't check out when we say doctrine or theology, because those are really important, good things that we need to think about. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on heavy doctrinal stuff, but it's here in this passage, especially in the beginning. We see a few things that it tells us very clearly about God. And the first of which is that God knows everything. If you look at verses one through five, it says, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know, when I sit up and when I rise, you know, my thoughts, you know, my path, my lying down, you're acquainted with all my ways. You know, my words before they're on my tongue, you know, me altogether. And so we get this picture when we think of who God is and what it teaches us about God is that he knows everything. There's nothing that he doesn't know. He's omniscient is what we say. We put it in big words, but it means he knows all things. And when we think about that, if you've grown up in the church at all, you probably say, yeah, okay, I got you on that one. I've heard that before. You learned that from a very young age. That's when we talk about a lot that, yes, God knows all things. But I'd submit to you this morning, and this is with all of us at one time or another, and quite often is the case. We just like to ignore that. We like to pretend that's not true. And oftentimes what we do is we just pretend it's not true. And then we kind of put on a good face like I've got it all together and all that other stuff. Nobody really knows about that. We pretend God doesn't know about it. And we just move on. But the truth is, God knows everything completely and totally about us all our thoughts and where we go and where we think, all of it, every single bit of it. And that's the first thing we see in terms of just big doctrine of who God is or theology of who God is, is that He knows all things. As you move through this passage, if you look at uh, verses 7, 8, and 9, we also see that God is <clears throat> omnipresent. He's in all places. There's nowhere where God is not. And we see David see that. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I go to the sea, to the uttermost parts of the sea. If I go in the dark, I try to hide in the dark, you're there. And so what we get is this picture of that not only God knows all things, He's in all places, He sees all things. And he's there. He's always there. You can't get away from anywhere that God is. And I think about that, that picture of where he is. And I think of uh, what we can know today by technology of how great uh, the spaces and galaxies and how far they are. And we look at those things and we see how huge and vast it is. And yet then we read that God's there. And then he's in all places and he's there. And so it starts to give us this very clear picture of of how large and how grand and how big God is. We can't even fathom. But when we begin to think about those pictures, that he's everywhere and he's the uh, the vastness of the universe, that he upholds it all by the power of his word. Or I, I like the way Jonathan Edwards says it. I just read this not all that long ago where he talks about that if God were to remove for a millisecond from his thoughts creation, it would cease to be. And I Think about that and think about how, large and how big God is and how all powerful and all the things that come along with that. Interestingly enough, in our day today, we use the vastness of the galaxies and what's out there is evidence that there is no God. We then say, well, it makes sense that it's all just an accident because it's so big. Even though it's so the odds, there are no odds, really, is, is what we get down to. There are no odds that our planet would be exactly where it is, the distance from the sun and the way it's tilted and the way it spins and all those things that have to exist for life to exist. But what we say then in our finite minds in our proud full selves as well, there's so much out there. It's just, you know, yeah, the odds are astronomical, but it's so big. It just happened to happen that way. And scripture actually says the opposite. It says that the stars and the heavens and all of it is declaring God's glory, and it's pointing us to that there is a God. And so we have the opposite picture in what Scripture tells us, that all of that is there to show us how wonderful and great and how big of a God that we serve. And when I think about those things, that the stars and the the, the good, good uh, just practice to get into. I do this every once in a while. I actually did it this week and I thought about it as I was working on the sermon. Sometimes I go out when it's really nice outside. I think Monday night it was like 70 degrees and I went outside and I laid in the driveway and just looked at the stars for a while. And I like to think about how big it is and how far it goes and what you can see and just take all that in for a minute and then think about what scripture says, that God upholds the universe by the power of his word. And it gives you this huge, the vastness of God. But then when you balance it with what David says at the beginning of the Psalms that I know all your thoughts or I know the hairs on your head or nothing happens that I don't know. And you get that God is that big, but yet he knows everything about me and he cares about me. And so you have this balance of back and forth of of what it is and that there's nothing that God cannot know. And and when I think of it in terms of the stars or something that's more that I can just see in front of me and think about, it's overwhelming. And I think. I get to where David is in verse six and what he says there when he says such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's an overwhelming thing to think about. Job says almost the exact same words in Job 42 after God has just told him how he laid the foundations of the world and how he made all things. And it gets to there to God's done telling Job this. And Job says, I spoke of things that I didn't know. Things far too wonderful for me. And that's what we get to when we start to think of the fullness of God and we think of the doctrines of who God is, that he knows all things, he upholds all things, that he's over all, he's in all places at all times. And so as we contemplate the hugeness, the vastness of that theology of who God is and what that means, there's really two ways we can go. It can either be really wonderful or it can be really terrifying. And so I want us to think first about the negative side of that, maybe why that can be terrifying. And you start to get a sense of this in this psalm. And that's why I say it that way, the the terrifying versus the wonderful, because I think you see both sides of it in David. You see it in the beginning. If you look at verses seven, eight and nine that we were just reading, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. I go to the Sheol, you're there. I go to the depths of the ocean, you're there. And you get this almost panic with David of its dawning on him. Everywhere I go, you're there. There's, there's nothing you don't know. Everywhere I go, I can see. You can see me. And you're always there. And you're always with me. And you see in verse 11 and 12, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. And he says, no, but even darkness is not dark to you. There's nowhere I can go to hide from God. He's in all places at all times. He sees all things. And so you get this picture of almost a panic there at the beginning parts of this passage, and I was thinking about it this week. I listened to a sermon on this particular passage about ten years ago, and I still had some notes from it. It's from Dr. Tim Keller. He's one of my favorite preachers, and he had this statement that just summed up this this terrifying element of it so well, much better than I could say it. And he said it like this: He said, "We want to be known because we want to be loved. Right? We want people to know us because we want to be loved, which is completely natural." Because we are made in God's image. God is relational. We're made to have relationships. So we want to be known because we want to be loved. But then he says this. But we don't want to be known because we want to be loved. Because if people knew everything about us, they wouldn't love us. I don't want you to know everything. I want you to know some things. And so you get the panic a little bit. When we think about the video screen, if all my stuff was up there, what would that be like? Oh, no, there's a panic that kind of sets in with that. If we knew all of it. I think a perfect example, when I listen to this sermon uh, from Dr. Keller, I don't think it was very, I don't even know if it was in existence, but I think of but we want to be known, but we want to be loved. We don't want to be known because we want to be loved. I think of Facebook and Twitter and social media. If you know what those are, it's a way for you to put your stuff on the Internet and show people pictures and tell them who you are and what you're like and you have relationships with people. But as I think about that, when you think about Facebook and what you do, you control what you put. This is who I am. This is what I look like. Here's my kids. This is what I do. This is what's happening, right? One th- so, so what you get is, is, I guess see this all the time. Friends put, you know, just ran 14 miles training for marathon. And you're like, oh, yeah, great. You know, yeah, yeah you're a super athlete and you're in better shape than I am. That's what you read. And you go, okay, great. What I never see is just laid on the couch and ate a whole pizza by myself. <laughs> I've never seen that status update on Facebook, right? You don't see the flip side of that. You don't see, I just spent all day on my computer while I ignored my kids. I've never seen that one. I've never seen, I'm really struggling to not look at pornography as I sit at my computer. I've never seen that, fa- that Facebook status update. Because we don't want people to know that part. We don't want people to know the fullness of who we are. And as Dr. Keller said it so clearly, we want to be known because we want to be loved. So here's the stuff I want you to know about me so you'll love me. But here's the stuff I don't want you to know, because you could never love me if you knew that. And so we get that both sides, the back and forth of that, that we want to be known because we want to be loved. But we don't want to be known because we so want to be loved. And so we want people to only know the best parts. And so I get to this part here in the middle of this psalm where David's going, where can I go to get away? And it's like it dawns on him. God knows everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. As we talked about the video with all my stuff, he's got that all of it, every bit of it, of every moment. He knows all that I am and all that I've ever done. And there's no hiding from him. And suddenly that can be very terrifying. And the reason it becomes terrifying when we start to think about that is we take and we project onto God who we are. We make God like us. If I knew the worst dirt on whoever, what happens? Sadly, oftentimes it turns into gossip. Did you hear what so-and-so did? We bring it up and we we relive it and we talk about it or we try to cloak it in. I want to help my friend, but listen to what he did. And we start to put that on God and that becomes so terrifying. We make God self-centered like we are in that we're smallness, our smallness. But God's not like us. And so when we start to think about the terrifying side, but then there's the wonderful side of it and you see a change in David. Suddenly it's where can I go to get away from you? But then look at verses 17 and 18. He's going through and then all of a sudden the tone completely changes here. And it says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And suddenly it's completely changed. Suddenly his thoughts are precious and wonderful and I welcome them and I want them. Or then you get to the end, verses 23 and 24, some of the most Famous verses in the psalm search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So what happened? How did he go from running to your thoughts are so precious to me? And you see that in verse uh, seven, eight, nine and eleven and twelve. And then all of a sudden in seventeen, Well, what's right there in between in those few verses in between what we see? Look at verses thirteen through sixteen. As David goes through and he's talking through this, God's inspiring him to write the psalm for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And what we get that takes David from this panic to delight, from this terror to wonder as he begins to see and, and remember that he's God's creation. That God made you, that he knit you together and he formed you and that you were his and he's sovereign over your life and who you are and he cares for you. Now, that's not to say that all our sin and all our stuff and God just loves all our sin and all our things. That's not the case. There's good reason that we don't want people to know certain things. That's our conscience. That's what God's put in our hearts. He's revealing to us that we are broken and we are sinful and that we are that we have turned from him. But what we get is that God still pursues us and he still loves us and he still comes after us. And he still wants to be reconciled with us despite our stuff, despite what's going on in our lives. You know, when you read this and it's something that we can't just gloss over because it's here And we say when we read through scripture, we're going to talk about what's there and and hit on these things. But when you get to those verses 13 through 16, you get to 16 and it says your eyes saw my unformed substance. What that's really saying is you saw my me as an embryo in my mother's womb. You saw me before I was born and you knew me completely and totally. And I say, well, well, we have to stop and at least talk about that, because what that says is that God, the sanctity of life is in scripture That God knows, even as an embryo, who you are. Even before conception, he knows who you are. And in conception, and as you begin to form, he knows you and knows your days and knows who you are. God is sovereign over all life. And so when we say that, the next step has to be say, that is why abortion is an abomination to God. We can't not say that when here it is in Scripture about who God is and the way he loves and, and the way he uh, crafts and makes all life, and so I bring that up not to say uh, to to dump on that or make it make you feel sad about it or guilty or shameful or whatever may be associated with that, but just to show you that's the biblical view of life that God is sovereign over all things, and it's not to make you feel guilty. I mean, the reality is there are some that have had abortions, that know people that have been intimately involved or associated with that. And it's not to make you feel guilty or to make you feel bad. It's actually the opposite in this passage. Because if you look at verse 10 right there in the midst of all this and the running and where can I go? Verse 10 says, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me even in the midst of your sin. And when you're trying to get away and you're trying to hide, God's there to hold you and to lead you and to bring you back. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. He wants to have that relationship with you in spite of anything that's been done or has happened, whether it be abortion or an affair or some sin that you're caught in or whatever it may be. God is bigger than that. And he loves you more than that. And it's right there in the middle of it. And so in the midst of that terror, that panic is that God says, I love you and I care for you. And I'm there. We think I can't be loved if they knew this. Right. If they just knew this, I want to be known because I want to be loved, but I don't want to be known because if they knew that, then that would be too much. And right here in the midst of Psalm 139, it says, no, that's not the case. And it's not just in Psalm 139. It's all the way throughout scripture. If you've noticed, as we've been walking through all the way through, you start with Adam and Eve. They're right there in God's presence. Everything's perfect. And what do they do? They turn their backs on them and God doesn't say, "Okay." I wanted to know you and love you, but now we know do- what he does is he says, let me make clothes for you. Let me tell you how I'm going to restore you. Let me give you a promise of how I'm going to come and I'm going to save you and I'm going to bring you back right in the midst of their sin. And you could you can pick any number of stories all the way through scripture. It's over and over, whether it's Abraham, whether it's the nation of Israel, where it's David right in the middle of David's life. He commits murder and adultery, and all these things, and God is still there to guide him and bring him back and hold him. And you see it all the way through, but it's not any more obvious to me than anywhere in Scripture than on the last night of Jesus' life. It's so clear, and so, when you think about that picture of what happens on the last night of Christ's life, because if you know the story, just a few hours before he would go to the cross and willfully lay his life down, he's in the garden, and he says, Pray with me. Stay up and just pray with me tonight. And the disciples say, okay, yeah, yeah, we're with you. And three times they fall asleep. They can't even stay awake. So there's Jesus over agony of what's about to happen, knowing what's about to unfold and they're falling asleep. And then they come to take him away. And all of a sudden the disciples scatter and the few that linger around Peter comes and watches. But as soon as somebody says, aren't you the guy that was with Jesus? No, I don't know. Him. Not me. And they take off. And you think about what Jesus, the closest people to him, In his earthly life, those that knew him better than anything else, what happens when the worst comes? And what does he do? He goes to the cross and he willingly lays his life down anyway. He doesn't say, well, because of that, that's too much. No, he says, I'm going to do it anyway. And he goes to the cross and he lays his life down. And what happens is when we see that, is that we want to be known and we want to be loved. But we say, well, if it was just that, and it says God resoundingly says, no, I still love you. There's not some sin or something that now cuts it off. And now I don't love you anymore and I'm not going to pursue you. I still love you. And so he he comes after us. Yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even in our sin, as we just sang this morning, even when I was a rebel to your will and I was running for you, you drew me to you. You came after me anyway. And see, when that happens, when we get to that, what that says is the cross proves to us that we are known. We're known completely down to our core, all of our sin and all of our rebellion. But yet we are loved completely and infinitely by a God who is gracious and merciful. Despite all our stuff. And so that's what takes it from being terrifying to. To wonderful. That's what rips it open from being an awful scary thing to you getting to verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because when we realize that he loves us in spite of all our rebellion and all our stuff, it then frees us to say, God, I don't want this stuff in me. I want you to look deeply in me and help me root this out so I can glorify you better. I can reflect your love and your mercy and your grace and all your attributes and who you are better. And I want you to know what's in my heart. I want to pray that you would reveal what's in my heart and root it out. I want to have a body of believers that will come alongside of me and know me completely, knowing the gospel well enough that they won't hold it over me. That we won't gossip about one another, but we'll hold each other accountable and say, yes, let's get rid of that together. Let's be conformed to the image of Christ each and every day, fuller and fuller and more as far as we can go every day. See, that's the wonderful thing of the gospel. That's what's supposed to happen in churches. We're not supposed to walk around and go, yes, everything's great. I've got it all together. You've got it all together, too. Great. Well, we'll pray for the bad people. We need to get to a point where we're we're willing to do that. Now, I say that, and I understand that doesn't mean you're going to stand up and say, okay, now let me tell everybody this is all my worst things and, and tell it. But it does mean that we seek out relationships, that we get involved in small groups, that we get involved in one on one discipleship so that we can do that with one another. This is where I'm struggling, and this is where I need prayer, and this is where I need help. Because I want to root out these things. And the reason we can do that is because of the hope that we have, because of who Christ is, because of his grace and because of who God is and the way that he's dealt so graciously with us, that he is and does love us no matter what and that he is for us and we can rest in that. So we know when we mess up or we trip up or we sin, we go and we confess it, knowing that he loves us and he wraps his arms around us and he goes, "Okay, let's move forward. Let's go at this. Let's keep going one degree of glory to another, right? Those he called, he justifies. Those he justifies, he sanctifies. And those he sanctifies, he will glorify. And we're, go- we're along that path and we want to chase that all the way. So when we get that, when we get the heart of the gospel, and that's what I think you see even in Psalm 139 and what David lays out there is that it's not terrifying. It's not an awful thing at the cross. It's a wonderful thing to be known and to be known fully, by a gracious and loving God. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you. That you are so gracious. That you are so loving. That you know us. That you know every bit of us. Every part of us. And yet you are willing to come and enter this story. And lay your life down. That we could be restored to you. I pray that we would see that afresh every day. That we'd be a body of believers that continually preaches and teaches and exhorts one another with that wonderful fact of who you are and what you've done for us, and that it would transform the way that we interact, that we'd be open and honest to love one another and seek your face together to admit our weaknesses and let you uh, your wonderful gospel do its work in us. We thank you. We could never thank you enough for all you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.